Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John 4. This focus weekend, we've been touching on the theme of joy. Not in a, maybe a literal exposition of joy proper, but really a, a thematic sense of how that joy is connected to being rightly related with God. Joy is given to us through his word. Joy uh, results in us loving one another. It's, um, it's based on the sovereignty of God. It's based on the love of God. And um, on Friday night, if you're here, we took the theme of God's sovereignty as seen in Jesus' betrayal and how that he's in control of all these circumstances. Uh, with the men, we talked about on, on this Saturday during the prayer breakfast, we talked about how that um, we can run the race, we can find our ultimate joy in Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, if we'll allow the Father to really discipline us and do a work in our life. Uh, this morning in the Sunday School Hour, we talked out of Psalm 19, how that God's Word, it, it actually gives us ultimate joy. Tonight, uh, we'll be looking at the blessedness or the soul satisfaction of forgiveness and how that we can have Really a, a joy knowing that we're rightly related with God. Uh, not just for the salvation of our soul from God's judgment, but also under the daily uh, pressure of displeasing God, that we can actually have joy in the finished work of Jesus. And then this morning, I'd like us to look in First John chapter 4. 1 John is a very unique book. It's repetitious in its communication. It's circular in its argumentation. He said in verse 4 of chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, he said, these things write we unto you that our joy may be complete. He's, he's actually giving to us an understanding of how is it that we can have a relationship with God. False teachers had come into the church and they began to say things like, you really don't need to love one another. They began to deny their sinfulness. They were denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And really the, the message of John is, no, Jesus is the Son of God. Be through the finished work of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And, and, and because God loves you, you can love others. I think what steals our joy, I think our trials um, steal our joy. We're not sure which end is up. Is God really in control? I think what steals our joy is broken relationships. Um, that's what we want to address this morning. Because rather than have a joy in the walk that God's given us, uh, we can allow our relationships to distract us. We can allow our relationships to stir up fear. And have you ever noticed that a fearful person can only think about himself? When you get afraid, are you, uh, are you a fight or flight person? How many of you, when you get scared, you're a fight person? Raise your hand. How many of you are a flight person? How many are both? You know, there's always some funny videos circling around social media, especially around Christmas. I, I saw one where there, somebody had put together a fake snowman. Did you see this one? There's a fake snow, snowman by a hardware store, and people would be walking down the sidewalk, and then this fake snowman would whether leap at them or growl at them or, you know, make some, you know, noise or something, and then you'd see the reaction, and, and there was all sorts of reactions across the spectrum of fight 
and flight. Some people would drop their stuff and grab their friend and shove it to the carnivorous snowman. Others would run. Some would even try to punch at the snowman. Some would try to act like they weren't scared, right? You'd just see them embarrassed. embarrassed. Some, some, would, uh, some would swear at the snowman. Um, but fear is not relegated to somebody hiding around a corner. And take a young father. He and his family are struggling to pay the monthly bills. They, they have thousands of dollars of credit card bills. There's college loans that they haven't been able to pay yet. There's nothing extra to spend. The dad is fearful of what other people think. The dad is fearful of providing for his young family. And then, and then one day, one of his younger children trips and falls and breaks a glass. And the dad just explodes. Be more careful. We don't have money lying around. He's upset over a $3 glass. Why? Because at that moment, his fears are revealed and a fearful person can only think about himself. She's got stage four cancer. She's receiving wonderful care. Yet she just rips into her health care providers. Rather than enjoying friends, rather than have a joyful spirit, she spends her last remaining days just spewing bitter comments. She's afraid. And a fearful person can only think about herself. He's actually quite good at basketball. He's, um, uh, yet when he loses a game, well, he loses it. He attacks players, destroys referees. He even takes it out on his families. He, he's afraid. He's afraid that others won't like him when he loses. He's afraid he won't get the scholarship. He's afraid he won't go to the Division I school. He, his fear blinds him to the needs of others. His life only works when he's winning. He's afraid of losing. And a fearful person can only think about himself. Have you ever realized that every fearful person is actually living out a response that's focused on self? Oh, it could be self-preservation. It could be self-defense. It could be a assertiveness or a self-consciousness. But when you boil it down, the fallen condition in all of us is that fearful people are selfish people. Selfish people are fearful per people. A fearful person can only think about himself. Are you emotionally aware enough to observe your fear? You know, I find that most people don't like to be thought of as fearful. They, they're okay if you say that they're proud, because we're all proud. They're okay if, if you say that they're a little bit selfish. Yes, we're a little bit selfish. But when you really zero in at what the essence is of their sin, that it's actually fear, they get a little bit anxious. I, I'm not afraid. Well, what are your fears? What, what are you afraid of that's going to be exposed about you? What are you afraid that people are going to know about you? Are you afraid that people are going to know that you really aren't as good as you like people to make you, and you like people to think you are? Are you afraid that something in your workplace is going to get exposed? Or are you afraid of not having some treasure, some pleasure? What, what are your fears? First John 4 has some great words about loving people rather than using people. 
It's hard just to jump right into the chapter 4 of 1 John because of what I said, that circular argumentation of his ar argument, his amplification tactic where he just gets louder and louder and he repeats himself. It's, it's hard to jump in and yet if we were to read through the whole book of 1 John in a quick setting, we'd realize that 1 John 4 is like the filet. 1 John 4 puts it all together. And, and though in this message this morning, I, I want to zero in on the fallen condition that, that rather than love and serve others, a fearful person can only think about himself. But because of context, we, we really have to address 1 John 4, 7 through 21. But we're going to take the essence and application of our text from verse 17. And we'll read that right now. By this is love perfected with us. So we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I want to propose to us that God's perfect love frees the Christian to love others. God's perfect love frees the Christian to love others. If you're here today and you don't claim to be a Christian or you don't claim to know Jesus Christ as your own Savior, what, what you're going to hear is an apologetic for Christianity. What you're going to hear is why Christians can and must love others. If you're here as a Christian, what you're going to hear is a, a, an encouragement that by God's grace and because God loves you, you are now free to love others. In fact, if we were to organize it with three points, we'd say this, love others because God loves you. Love others because God lives in you. Love others because God perfects his love in you. That first point, love others because God loves you. This is found in verse 7 through 11. Verse 11 states the Christian's responsibility is love on the initiative of God. Lo beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So how does God love his children? Well, we need to understand that God is the source of love. Go back to verse 7 through 8. He says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is the most foundational aspect of what love is. God is the source of love. Many have used the love of God to actually further explain the doctrine of the Trinity. The deduction would be that love must be an expression, or, or love must have been an expression of that Trinitarian love. For, for God is love. He's loved the Son for all of eternity. The Son has loved the Father. They've coexisted for all of eternity. John 17 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Technically, the point of 1 John 4 is not to prove that God is love, but it's to demonstrate that everything God does is touched by his love. God's love results in actions towards others and is not looking for rewards or waiting for a response. 
I, I want you to think about this. This is one of those foundational truths for us to understand. How is it that we can love others? God's love results in actions towards others and is not looking for rewards or waiting for a response. God, God, since God is satisfied in himself, he does not need anything from anyone to declare his love to whom he, whom he chooses to love. We're not talking about a Zeus or some other insecure demagogue or, or some other member of the pantheon. God's love is the bedrock on which we're able to love others. Aren't you glad God loves us not because of our behavior? God is the source of love. He displayed his love by sending his son. We see this verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son in the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see God sent his son so believers could live so that we might live through him. We see the initiative in all these action verbs that happen in a past tense. He said, was, made, manifest, sent, loved, sent. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came as a physical manifestation of God's love. In contrast, we came to this world with a death sentence. And yet Jesus Christ took on flesh and died so we could live and experience the love of God, but he sent his son, God sent his son, so that believers could be forgiven. Verse 10, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is righteous and is connected to all of his attributes. It's not sloppy, it's not soft. God made a way to redeem us without compromising his holiness. This righteous redemption came at a great cost. God forgives us through the sacrifice of his own son. God, or Jesus Christ, becomes our propitiation. You see, Jesus, in being the propitiation, it means that he was the sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns that wrath into God's favor. The Day of Atonement illustrates propitiation through the offering of multiple sacrifices. I mean, Hebrews 10 verse 10 says, and that, by, uh, and, and that by that we will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But God sent his son to die for those who did not love him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God. But he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's nothing natural in man that, that causes God to love us. There's, there's, it says this, for while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Verse 7 of chapter 8 of Romans, for in the mind, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. There's nothing in us that would naturally force God to love us. God does not need us. God's love for us is sourced in his own nature. He chooses to set his love upon us of his own choice, out of his own infinite will. Think about this again. God's love results in action towards us and is not looking for rewards or waiting for a response. If God was loving us because we would one day, maybe he was hoping that something good would happen in his creation and, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, now I feel satisfied because they, they responded to my love, then basically we would be the one that would be giving the grace to God. But actually, it's God who's satisfied in himself and so therefore he can love us. And he gives 
his children the ability to love. Verse 7, whoever has been born of God and knows God, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. You see, people, Christians are people who claim to be born of God and know God. To be born of God is to be regenerated, and regeneration is the spiritual experience whereby the divine nature is imparted to the believer. The result of this new life is the gift of God's own love, his nature. Do you see what we're doing here? God is love. He puts that love in Christians through the work of his spirit. Romans 5 verse 5 says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he's given unto us. And in addition to know God, communicates that the believer has experientially understood the attributes of God. You see, whoever loves has been born of God, and negatively, whoever does not love does not know God. The unbeliever does not possess or understand God's love. Oh, there may, may be a, a normal or a family love because the common grace that's given to all image bearers, I mean, Matthew talks about this. He says, you've heard that it's said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, that's kind of normal. You love, your, you love those that are close to you and hate that those that are opposed to you. That's kind of natural for us to do this, but he goes on and says, let me tell you about true love, this true Christian love, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And what is he saying? Our ability to love is sourced in who God is, and God through his spirit puts that love in us. So that later in the text it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Get this. What this means is that every single one of us, by God's grace, that claim to know Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior, have the love of God that dwells in us through the finished work of Christ. And therefore, we ought to love one another. I mean, what's the one, the greatest joy robbers? I can tell you what it is. It's when I have a broken relationship with other people. I mean, how many of you have ever lost any sleep because of somebody else? I mean, how many of you have ever had a conversation with somebody? You're driving down the road and you're talking to somebody that's not in the car. You ever had that conversation? I can no, 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 no. And if you dare say this, I'm gonna tell you something. Do you know your joy is not really dependent on other people? God is love. And God gives his love through his spirit. And so therefore, Dad, you do not need perfect children before you love. Husband, you do not need a perfect wife before you love. Single, you do not need a spouse before you love. Employee, you do not need a perfect employer before you love. God is 
love. And he puts that love in us through his spirit. Love others because God loves you. But love others because God lives inside of you. You see, Christian, at salvation, a miracle took place. The Spirit of God now dwells in you. You now confess that, the, uh, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In fact, one of John's main purposes in writing First John is to help believers have this confident assurance of a personal and eternal relationship with God. And so six times in verses 12 through 16, he uses the word abide to communicate what a Christian is. A lot of times I'll get thrown into a counseling situation and somebody will tell me, I just, I'm doubting my salvation. And, and maybe it's somebody that grew up in Christianity, you know, like a, a formal Christianity. Parents were Christian. They went to a Christian church, but they don't know if they have a personal relationship with God. And I'll ask them, I'll say, so what is a Christian? Now, I'm intentionally asking a, a, a question that's a little bit philosophical in nature. I'm, I'm saying, what is a Christian? Do you know how most people respond? They, they, they respond with not answering the question, what is a Christian? But they try to answer with, how, do, how does a person become a Christian? So I'll say, what is a Christian? And they'll say, oh, um, a Christian is somebody who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They, they saw that they were a sinner, and they believed that Jesus Christ was the Lord of their life, and they just, they, they, they turned from sin, they put their faith and trust in Jesus. So I'll say, well, that's great. That's how a person becomes a Christian, but what is a Christian? They got like, ah, oh, so uh, a Christian is like somebody who prays, um, and they, they got saved. I said, well, thank you for saying what it is for someone to become a Christian, but what is a Christian? Do you know what a Christian is? A Christian is somebody who has Christ in them, and they are in Christ. You know what a Christian is? A Christian is somebody where God abides in them and they abide in God. A, a Christian is somebody whose heart has been changed. They've been born of God. Oh, yes. That, 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 that results in, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's in conjunction with seeing God for all of his glory and seeing their sin and, and the, the, the death that they deserve but, and, and putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But, but he, he just is so clear in saying a Christian is somebody who is God in them and they are in God. He says in verse 12, no one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And then we've seen and testified the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in in him. I'm not going to take a long time with this, this section, but I want to communicate to us that our ability to love those that are around us is because God dwells in us. Our ability to love those that are around us is because God is love, and he puts that love in us at salvation. And God's presence is, is manifested when believers love one another. Verse 12, no one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You see, as a spirit, God is not naturally seen. 
John 6 says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Um, 1 Timothy says, Who alone was immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. Do you know that the invisibility of God has always been a problem for natural man? Uh, you see, the pagan, he can see his idols. The modern man can use his five senses. But where's God? Remember Jesus talking to Philip? Have you been with me so long? And you yet do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, Christ came to this earth to reveal the unseen Father to us. In addition, God's presence is manifested when believers love one another. So, so the revelation of God, it started in a general sense, and then a, a very special, specific sense through his word, but, but really the incarnation, God with us. And, and Jesus Christ reveals God to us. But do you know that in this present age that when Christians love one another, when Christians love others, do you understand that God's presence is showcased to those that are around us? You see, there, there, should, there ought to be a community of God's people that so love one another with a divine love that when somebody comes in here, they say, you know what? I don't know if I understand everything they're talking about. I don't know if I believe all that they're talking about. But I know this. They sure love each other. Because it's in that that we showcase the Father. Uh, one of my friends, we know them, the Pettits. Uh, Terry Pettit, she um, was diagnosed with cancer, and she was um, uh, off the road. She was in Denver. She was at a church, and um, she was just kind of going through, you know, cancer treatments, and Steve and the team were still traveling, and uh, um, Terry Pettit, she just, uh, because of her background, she would say that um, there was always some doubts of salvation, just some ups and downs and, you know, kind of a question mark. Does, um, does God love me? You know, how, how many of you ever struggled, does God love me, right? Like, when does God love you most? My wife and I, this is uh, a little story within a story. My wife and I were counseling somebody, and um, this girl was just talking about all she does and everything, and I, and I just, I interrupted her. I said, so when does God love you most? And she goes, well, uh, mm, uh, well, uh, all the same, right? How many of you are thankful God's love for you is not based on your behavior, right? And here's Terry Pettit, trying to serve God, trying to sing in churches, support her husband, raise a family. She gets cancer. There's nothing she can do. She, she, can't, she can't sing. She can't do good works. She's stuck in a church away from her family. And you know what God's people did? They loved on Terry Pettit. I mean, people were bringing food. People were dropping $100 bills off of the house. Somebody wrote a check. Terry said, I'd never received that much money. But she said, and I never was loved like that. And she said, I've never felt the love of God when there was nothing I could do to serve him. And yet he took care of me. You see... 
God's presence is manifested when believers, when they love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You, you see, it reaches its goal. That's what that word perfected means. It doesn't mean that I reach some sinless perfection, but when I love another, guess what? God's love, you see, God's love has always been spilling out of who God is. He's the fountain of love. He, he is the creator of love. He's, he's the reason why there is love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. All of eternity, that bedrock of God's love is like a spring, and it's been revealed, and His revelation's been shown to us, and then His Word, and then Jesus, and then Christ dying on the cross, and then through the Spirit, He puts that love in us. But do you think that you're supposed to bottleneck God's love? Like, like, is the revelation of God supposed to stop with you? No, you're to continue that process of God revealing himself to others by now loving those that are around you. And when God's love comes through you, it reaches its destination. It's completing, it's, it's achieving a goal. If we love one another, God is seen and God's love reaches its destination. Um, for some, though, when we look at our life, we're like, why don't I love other people? How many of you have ever had a season in your life where you're like, wow, I am selfish? You ever had one of those before? Man, I say selfish things. I do selfish things. I don't think I love anyone. I don't think I love anyone on this planet. I think life is all about me. And you know what? For those of us that are so introspective and we're looking, we're like, well, why don't I love like God loved me? And some of us that are, that are rightfully being convicted about our selfishness, do you know what he does? He says, let me, just, let me just showcase to you three indicators so you know if God abides in you and you abide in God. Um... John, he, he just does this so many times. He opens up a door and he opens up another door over here and then he opens up a door over here and you can almost get lost, but, but let me just say it again so you understand where, where we're going. He, he, you see, God's love originates with himself. God puts his love or showcases his love through Jesus, but he puts his love in us through the Spirit of God and so therefore I'm free to love others. But when I don't love others, it causes us to go a little bit. Uh, when I don't love others, it causes me to say, well, is Christ in me? Is God's love in me? And he says, well, well, let me just give you a little parenthesis so you know whether or not God dwells in you and you dwell in God. He says, verse 13, you can know that God dwells in you because he gives his spirit to his children. By this we know that we abide in him, verse 13, and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. Can I tell you, being a Christian is not just conforming outward behavior. Okay, I, I'm uh, planting churches in Utah. The predominant worldview in Utah is a religion that says that God's grace, I mean, there's a verse in their, in their writings that says, after I've done all that I can do, God will do the rest. At the very core, a mantra that's taught to children at a young age is, as God was, we are. As God is, we can become. At the very core is a grace that's based on self. At the very core, my ability to, to become God is based on all of my behavior. Can I tell you? 
that Utah is ranked first in female attempted suicide in the nation. Highest prescription psychiatric drug abuse in the nation. Highest per capita plastic surgery in the nation. Why do you think? Because any time we try to be spiritual in our own strength, we burn out. And you know what he's saying? He's saying this is deeper than just some outward conformity. The love of God and God himself can actually dwell in you through his spirit. We know we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And God begins to radically change from the inside out. He puts in us a desire to grow. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek those things which are above. There's a conviction of sin. 1 John 3 verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. There's a conviction over those inner things that nobody else sees. There's a hunger to know and do the word of God. 1 John 3, 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by his spirit that he's given to us. The manifestation of the fruit of the spirit, the, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. Against such there is no law. You know what? I'm thankful that God's given me the privilege over the years to preach in different places. I mean, I've preached here, I don't, I'd, I'd have to really think it through, but it's somewhere between eight and ten times. I mean, way back, I mean, we did the 9-11 service. I don't know if some of you remember that. We were with the Pettits, it was like two weeks after 9-11. We were here and we did the service. We invited all the firefighters, all the police. Uh, I mean, this place was packed out. I mean, I've been here numbers of times, but you know what's so encouraging to me by coming back to the same place? Like, like you see Will, like you see Will right here. But can I tell you something? Like, by God's grace, I'm not the same dude that was preaching here even two years ago. Like, I'm not perfect. I mess up a lot. But like one old timer said, I'm not what I ought to be. But I'm not what I used to be. I am what I am by the grace of God. You want to know something? You know whether or not the Spirit of God dwells in you, don't you? You know the secret conviction that the Spirit of God does. You know the, 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 the private uh, alluring towards the Word that He puts in your heart. You know how He stirs you up to confess your sin when nobody else sees it, how to show love towards other people. You see, we look at our selfishness and sometimes we can be overwhelmed. And what does He do? Right here in the middle of this text, He says, No, be assured that, that if God's Spirit dwells in you, you dwell in God. He says, you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, 1 John 4, 14 through 15. And we see and testify the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. John the Apostle, he says, I've got this personal relationship with God. The Spirit of God worked in me and I have this, this, this life with Christ. You can have life in Christ and you can confess Jesus. It's personal in nature. Whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God. God dwells in him and he in God. But they grow in their assurance of the love of God. 1 John 4, verse 16. And so we've come to know 
and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You see, you walk with the Lord. You walk with the Lord through, through ups and downs, through trials, through convictions, through, through failures, through successes. I mean, you walk with God, and you know what he begins to do? He begins to imprint on your heart a deeper belief that you've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. I'm um, getting ready to celebrate 20 years of marriage with Christy. Um, I know for some of you that still means we're like spring chickens. But 20 years means that we've been doing this for a little bit of time. Um, I love Christy more today than I've ever loved her. And part of it is because I don't know why. But she loves me. Like, when I think of 20 years of marriage, do you know there's been times I've said really hurtful things to Christy? Sometimes intentional, and sometimes unintentional. You know, there's been times that I've... Um, I've actually caused her to be afraid because maybe I wasn't doing what I should be doing. And yet she still loves me. You know what I've come to know and believe? That she loves me. But there's one that sticks closer even than a brother. You know, it's one thing to know mentally God is love. It's another thing even to know, like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. But isn't it a sweet thing to have the love of God dwell in us through his spirit? Isn't it a sweet thing to go through life, the ups and the downs and the lefts and the rights and, and the trials and the times of joy, ups, all overs, and there's the constant of God, the love of God is in us through the Spirit of God so that we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And we're to love one another, right? Because God is love. God puts his love in us through his spirit, but then we're to love others because God perfects his love in us. This takes us to verse 17 through 21. You see, John tells the believer that when they love others, their love is made perfect. It's arrived at a destination. It's matured. It's, it's like a child developing into a fully, uh, uh, a fully capable adult. And God's love matures and God's love works in us so that we're now beginning to be free. You know, a child can just think about themselves. A child is, is thinking about, can they have a sucker? Can they watch the TV? I mean, can they play? Can they, can they avoid work? I mean, a, a child is thinking about themselves, but soon an adult is supposed to mature and soon an adult is saying, well, how can I make this world better? I mean, how can I serve my church? I mean, how can I develop my family? I mean, how can I leave a legacy that impacts others for good and there's this maturity process and that's what God's love does in us. God's love so matures in us so that we can love others and we don't have to be afraid of God's judgment. 
You see, he repeats it. It's, it's, um, it's hard to preach through 1 John without repeating yourself because that's what he does. He just, he just amplifi amplifies. He just gets louder and louder. And what well, he tells us again. So verse, four, uh, verse 19 of chapter 4, he reminds us, perfect love originates with God. We love because he first loved us. I think as we've gone through this message this morning, I think that we've moved from the theological to, theological to the experiential. What I mean by that is, is um, if I was to say how many of you are Christians and maybe the vast majority raised their hand and said, I'm a Christian. And then I was to say, how many of you know that God loves you? We'd all go, yes, God loves you. But how many of you, as we've been preaching through this, you've been thinking, God really loves me. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I deserve his wrath. Yet Jesus took my place. We love because he first loved us. Remember I said I, I've come to know and believe that, that Christy loves me? How it impacts me? How I love her more? I'm like, wow, I love this girl. She loves me. I can't believe this. Why should she love me? But, but as we think about God loving us, what happens in our heart? He loves me. It's not based on my behavior. It's, it's based on the finished work of Jesus. He loves me. You know what it does? It works and creates boldness in us so that we may have boldness or confidence for the day of judgment. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. You see, what's taking place is, is Christian, you don't have to think about yourself because God accepts you. You're, you're not going to be judged at the end of the age. First um, John 2 verse 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in the shame of his coming. First John 3, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, we, for he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. You see this perfect love, when it's reaching its destination, it's creating a boldness in our heart that we can face God. I had this lady, she came up to me and she said, she said, Will, I, I just don't, I, I don't know if I want to die. I, 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 Jesus Christ is my Savior, but I don't want to die. I, I don't want to get to heaven and, and like somewhere, like I'm sure all my sins, I, I, I know I've been saved, I know my sins are forgiven, but I'm just so afraid that every bad thing I've done is going to be projected on a screen and, and everyone's going to watch it in heaven and I just don't want to go. I said, ma'am, where did you find that? I mean, like, like in the Bible, where did you find that, that a Christian sin is going to be projected? She goes, I don't know. I said, I know where it came from. It's a chick track. You guys remember chick tracks? You don't know chick tracks. Chick tracks were awesome. They're like these little cartoons. Whenever the sermon was boring when I was a kid, I'd read them in the sermon. They're these little cartoons, and, and one of the chick tracks is talking about a guy who, who's not a believer and how the, the, works of his, the, the works of his life are going to be shown and compared against the law of God. And, and yet, you know what? Sometimes Christians have this whole concept that somehow they're going to get to heaven and God's going to go like, and you remember when you lied? And you remember when you did this? 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 And I just want to grind, grow, I want to take your nose and I want to run you in this. Can I tell you, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. 
I mean, really, are you not sinning right now? I mean, how many of you are like a sin is right there? Some thought, some evil, something going on. Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ paid for our sins once for all? And as a Christian begins to understand this, they don't have to be afraid. They don't have to be afraid of God's judgment because as we, as Christ was, so are we in this world. You see, Jesus Christ, he, he was right with the Father. And now Jesus Christ's righteousness has been applied to our account. We can stand in a relationship to God the same way that Jesus Jesus does. So that we can have confidence in the day of judgment. And so this perfect love, it casts out fear. There's no fear in love. He goes on, verse 17 into 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. That word punishment, verse 18, the only other time is found in the whole Greek New Testament is in Matthew 25, verse 46, and it's talking about eternal punishment. You see, you don't have to be afraid of going to hell. Christian, you don't have to be afraid of the judgment of God. And the point of the matter is is that fear is torturous. Fear is hellish. A fearful person can only think about who? Say it loud. A fearful person can only think about fear is self-centered. Fear is an emotion that anticipates rejection. I mean, that's what the fear of God is. It's like, it's like that, that test you know you're going to fail. It's like that payment you can't make. It's, it's like the expectation that, that you'll never satisfy. And you got the pit in your stomach. You know it's coming and you just feel bad. And, and, and for somebody that's living life without Christ, they know when they face God, they're going to be separate from God for all of eternity. They're going to be rejected forever. And so a person that's living on this earth that's not resting in the love of God. They, they're living with the fear of rejection. You see, when we're unsure where we stand with our ultimate relationship with God, every other relationship will be affected. Like when my vertical is not right, my horizontal will be off as well. And what are the most basic fearful responses in relationships? How about becoming paralyzed? You know, a paralyzed person is a fearful person that lives in a lazy manner out of fear of what would happen if a wrong decision is made. I mean, some of us, we just freeze. Like, like there's a decision to be made, and we just freeze. We, we freeze because we're not sure which way to go. What about withdrawal? Afraid we're going to be hurt by somebody, so we just, we just avoid deepening the relationship. It's the turtle. You know, I got hurt, like head down, tail up, arms in. You hurt me once, shame on you. You hurt me twice, shame on me. Control freak. That messed up before. I'm going to make sure it never messes up again. I'm going to come up with procedures and processes and I'm going to control it. I am just a control freak. I will make sure it never happens again. Frantic performance mode. Some of us are so fearful that we're just so frantic and we're just running around trying to get everything so that everyone's happy and, 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 and usually... Uh, Usually a, a frantic person is not a joyful person. Because technically, a fearful person can only think about who? What about attack mode? I'm going to strike hard, strike fast, strike first before anyone can hurt me. It's the ultimate preemptive strike. 
or a life of diversion and distraction. It's just like, I'm so fearful, I'm not going to deal with reality. I'm going to drift into virtual reality. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to game away my life. I'm going I'm to watch shows because I don't want to deal with reality. I'm just going to... How many of you would know one of those that you have a tendency towards? Paralyzed, withdrawal, control, frantic, attack, diversion. How many of you know which one you maybe struggle with? Raise your hand. Okay, let's do a vote this morning, all right? Come on, let's all talk. Do you want to know mine first? How many want to know mine first? How many think you know mine? I can tell you which one I am. I'm the control freak, okay? Any other control freaks out there? We'll start with that one. Who's a control freak? Raise your hand. I want to control you. Put your hand up. How many of you become paralyzed? Your fear results in paralyzation. Raise your hand. How many paralyzed? How many withdrawal? You just, you just protect yourself and you protect your heart. You're withdrawal. Raise your hand. How many of you are frantic? You just do. You go, do. I'm going to go do. You're the jerk ball. Okay. How many go into attack mode? Okay. How many didn't raise your hand? <laughs> You're paralyzed, withdrawal, control freak. When a person's fearful, he can't do anything but think about himself. Contrast that to the freedom that comes when you're convinced that God loves you. You can love people even if they don't like you. You see, only mature love casts out the various self-centered fears and insecurities and the fear of man's rejection. You see, perfect love is seen in our relationship with others. So, so when I come to understand the love of God for me, that God loves me, that he is love, he showed his love through Jesus dying on the cross, he puts that love in me through the Spirit, it casts out fear. I don't have to be afraid of future judgment. And guess what that now does? It frees me to love other people. You can't steal my joy. You, you can't steal it. No way. I love you even if you don't like me. You see, when, you're, when, when a believer is rid of the fear of eternal rejection, it doesn't matter what happens here. You put a bullet in my head, I'm going to heaven. You take my money away, I have the riches of Christ. You offend me, it's okay because God accepts me. You see, you can't threaten me with earthy threats because there's a heavenly rest that comes when I know that God loves me. And now I'm free to love others because he first loved me. He says this perfect love is established in truth. We know whether or not we're resting in the love of God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He, you know what he's doing here? He's just saying, okay, let's make this real practical. You say that you believe that God loves you? Then let's examine all your earthy relationships. Let's examine everything here. You don't need to raise your hand, but how many of us have somebody that we hate? Who do you struggle to love? Who do you keep at arm's length? Who's done you wrong? And you struggle to forgive. Force yourself to submit to the words of John. You can't separate your love for others from your understanding of the love of God. But perfect love impacts others for good. 
You see, verse 21 brings the, the reader back. You see how he does this circle thing? Look at verse 21. He says, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is for God, and whoever loves is born of God and knows God. If we were just to put this into a circular pattern for us to remember, it'd, it'd go like this. I've been alluding to it all throughout the message. Um, so I gave it to us in three points. We're to love. Why? Because God is love and, and God puts his love in us and God's love is mature. Uh, mature is in us. So I, I, I did it that way. But I want to change the outline and I just want to give you something to remember. Here it is. Ready? It's a circular argument just like he argues throughout the whole book. God is love. He is. He's self-existent. He doesn't need us. He's satisfied in himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is love. God shows his love to us by sending Jesus. Remember, here is the love of God manifested to us that God sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So, so here's Jesus. So God is love. God shows his love to us through Jesus. But God puts his love in us through his Spirit. God's love Cast out fear. And now I am free to love others. I, need, I, I, I can and must love others. When I don't love others, guess what I need to be reminded of? That God is love. That God showed us his love through Jesus. God puts his love in us through the Spirit of God. That love casts out fear. So now I'm free and must love others. When I do love others, guess what? I don't glory in myself. I know it comes from God. When I do love others, he just takes me through another cycle of motive refinement. God is love. He shows his love to us through Jesus. He puts his love in us through the Spirit of God. It frees me from fear. So now I am free to to love others, not based on who I am or my behavior or my own righteousness, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, I can love you even if you don't like me. You see, what this does is this sets us free not to allow the temptations of this world, not to allow the broken relationships all around us to steal joy, but really to hear what John says when he says, these things write we unto you that your joy may be, that your joy may be full. And it comes about when we are resting in the love that God has for us. Okay. I know that what we just covered is a lot. For some of you, it could be actually a paradigm shift. It could be where you actually are like, oh, wow. God loves me. And it could be that really the impact of this message is going to trickle all this week. And it's like, like maybe on Thursday, it's like some light bulbs are going to go on. And you're like, wow, God loves me. I can love my boss, even though he's a jerk. I can love him because God loves me. There might be some of you tonight, you're laying in your bed next to your spouse who you've been struggling to forgive. And you're laying there and God is just, is, he's just working on you all day long today. And all of a sudden you're laying there. It's about two in the morning. You're like, you know what? I can love her. Because God loves me. It could be on Tuesday, you as a young mom, you're just, just you want to pull your hair out because your child. You're like, no, I can love this child because God first loved me. I don't have to lose my joy at my work. I don't have to lose my joy in my marriage. I don't have to lose my joy with my kid. I can love because God first loved me. But it could be that for some of us, that these are truths that you've known but it's almost like, it's almost like the, the plate of your heart has gotten oxidized. 
And you just need to take the scrub brush of God's love and maybe you need to get some memory verses about God's love out of Romans 8 or 1 John 4 and you need to just like all the way into work. You drive 20, 25 minutes. Like, like turn off, turn off the depressing, joy-robbing news and scrub brush your heart with the love of God. Or it could be that you're here as somebody that does not know Christ and you just have heard a relatively thick apologetic for why there's a God because of love. Something in your heart is quickened and something in your heart is like, I want to know Jesus. Well, I'm going to slip to the back in just a moment. You could slip from your chair and we could talk about how you could experience the love of God in Christ Jesus and not have to be afraid of facing God.